Today I have the privilege of speaking with Professor Claes de Vries, the first recipient of the Nils Klim Prize back in 2004. De Vries is the founder and head of the Center of Political Communication at the Amsterdam School of Communications, which is the largest research institute of its kind in Europe. Thank you so much for taking time for this interview. You're welcome. At the age of 29, you were the first person to receive the Nils Klim Prize. This is now 12 years ago. Seen in retrospect, what has the Nils Klim Prize meant for you? Winning the Nils Klim Prize was really a, an, an amazing experience. I remember very well uh, still the day that I received the call uh, because I was first called to ask if I would be available to take a call at 12 o'clock. Uh, and I was on a speakerphone where I was being informed about the existence of the prize and slowly building up towards uh, being informed that I was the first recipient of the prize. Uh, and I was totally, totally flabbergasted. Uh, and it was uh, a, a fantastic experience to be in Bergen uh, and, 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 and to spend days there and, and receive the award uh, and, and be at the Hokan Hall and all of these things. It was really, really outstanding. Um, and it has also been important. Uh, it has boosted a, a lot of interest in, in, in the work that I do. And it also yielded a lot of recognition back home here at the, uh, at the University of Amsterdam. I would also like to ask you about your background and some of the paths that have led you to where you are today. When and why were you initially drawn to media and communication studies? Well, for many years, uh, while being a teenager, I, I was certain that I wanted to be a, a journalist. And I actually first uh, considered that as a, as, a, as a study option. And I also ended up being in a program uh, that had a practical component, uh, made different uh, journalistic products. Uh, I worked on a documentary that was uh, broadcast on, on the Danish national television. But slowly but surely, I figured out that I was also very interested in the theoretical aspects and the, say, studying and understanding of the role of journalism and of media in, in society. And then I more and more gravitated to not, say, doing journalism, but rather uh, studying the, the role of media and journalism. During your career so far, what have you found to be the most rewarding topics to do research on? Well, so I have a, I would say, sort of a genuine and very fundamental interest in trying to understand the role and the changing role uh, that media play for, uh, in, for affecting um, public opinion and electoral behavior. And that, to me, is, really touches at, at say, the, the cornerstone of democratic societies. Um, so that is my... Uh, my say key reward because this is something I'm genuinely interested in and, and I'm uh, allowed to research these, these areas or these topics in, in, in the broadest sense. Why is research in your field so important? Well, I, I've been involved now in this, in this field for, uh, for I say, a good 20 years um, and there's no doubt that in these 20 years uh, societal discussions about the role of the media in democratic processes uh, have become even louder uh, and even more important. And we can't have these discussions without proper scientific research into how media operate, what kind of contents uh, they produce, and what effects that they have on, on citizens who are also in a position to much easily uh, tune to the media or, or neglect the media. And we need to have this fundamental research to have uh, a proper uh, discussions about the role of the media in, in, in democratic societies. Have your research interests changed uh, since uh, you received the prize? 
Uh, both yes and no. I mean, um, some things I've, I've, I've stayed working on. Uh, so back then I actually was working on, and I read my PhD on this topic, on the way in which news media in different countries cover issues of European integration uh, and its effect on, on public opinion and electoral behavior. And I still study that, um, and, and, and that is something where uh, the world has changed a lot. The, the European Union of 2017 is, is surely something else than, uh, than, than, than 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but I've also started doing work on, on, on new topics, uh, and one topic that I'm working on right now is uh, the, the influence and the impact of increasing degrees of personalization in news media content. Uh, what, what does that mean for democratic debate? What does it mean for uh, interest and knowledge of citizens in different uh, types of political topics? Um, so that's one example, and, and uh, we've just completed uh, a, a large study with uh, with colleagues where we looked at uh, the way in which the news media covered the uh, the, the big economic crisis. Um, so so definitely new topics, but also still holding on to to one of my my old core interests. In their citation. The Nils Klim Committee praised you for your ability to combine theoretical insights and methodological approaches from di different research traditions, such as political science, communication research, and media studies. What do you achieve by cross-disciplinary research compared to studying strictly within one field? Yeah, I believe that, that scholars that work in communication science actually have a major uh, advantage because the communication science uh, field is uh, in itself a very interdisciplinary field with people who work there who have been both trained in communication science but also sometimes in psychology, political science, pedagogics, uh, economics. Um, so I think that, that, that being in communication science you almost grow up and are socialized into working in, an, in a cross-disciplinary and interdisciplinary setting. I would say that as societies are developing, um, a lot of today's questions are not easily answered just with the perspective of one discipline. Um, so uh, monodisciplinary work can typically answer some questions that are rather narrow well, but will not do a good job in answering bigger questions. And to give an example, we're right now doing a study where we are working together at the Department of Communication Science with people in information law and people at the informatics department, so uh, who, are, who, are, who are more looking at, at say, big data. And we do that because we realize that we need their expertise and they need ours in order to, to answer some of the questions that we have at stake here. Um, so that the, what you gain is that you are able to answer bigger questions and you're also able to answer them better uh, because you can really draw on the insights from the different disciplines. And most of today's real big questions uh, are not very well answered just by a single uh, a single discipline approach. Uh, it's also um, it's it's costly in terms of time and energy uh, to do uh, this type of research, um, and uh, you have to realize that you're sort of two steps ahead, one step back all the time because you think differently about things, but you also make bigger bigger steps ahead. You are the co-author of the book Comparing Political Journalism, which came out in 2016 and for which you were awarded the Goldsmith Brook Prize. In this book, you write about the factors that shape and influence the political news coverage today. What do you find to be the greatest challenges with the changing media landscape? I mean, there are a couple of things that are of developments that are hugely important right now. Of course, on the one hand, we have this abundance of choice where it's basically possible for a citizen to consume uh, news 
24-7, but it's also possible for a citizen to be online and consuming media 24-7 without being exposed to political information and, and news. So that's a huge challenge in, in, in today's media landscape. And we also see that for all kinds of changing uh, procedures, the maintain, maintenance and, and securing that we actually have a free and independent uh, media uh, and journalism uh, is something that, that even in Western democracies uh, is something that we must pay very close attention to. What do you find to be the most important cross-national difference in news coverage? Well, so it's really amazing to see that if you live in one country or if you grow up in a country, I think you have an idea that this is what political news looks like. But if you just move across the border to the neighboring country, it can really be very different. So one of the topics I've investigated a lot over the years is how much attention and the type of news coverage that there is in different countries about the, about the European Union. And yet there you would be surprised that in some countries these topics are really at the high end of the agenda and in other countries it's completely neglected. So I think the most important sort of lesson is that, that don't take anything for granted because news can be really, really different in different contexts. Recently there has been a lot of discussion about fake news. What is your take on this subject? Yeah, this is obviously a very important current discussion. Uh, I think it's also one where we must be very clear that we're looking at very different things. I mean, on the one hand, uh, issuing propaganda as such is not new. And we have to make a difference between uh, when political institutions or parties uh, try to spread their information, which is essentially propaganda and is a phenomenon that we, of course, know and have studied for many years. Uh, and then you have uh, uh, news which is created by news organizations that might not adhere to classical principles of objectivity and fairness and balance. And it's very important to, to disentangle these things because otherwise we get away to broad discussion where uh, all kinds of things are called, uh, are called uh, fake news. Uh, but this whole discussion puts a huge uh, responsibility both on, on editors and journalists uh, but also on educators uh, who, uh, who we have to rely on to also teach a new generation how to navigate a landscape with, with, a lot, with a lot of different types of information that has different value. Is this predominantly a thing in the US or equally relevant to the European media landscape? Uh, it's probably a little early to, to say if you, you give the, the answer sort of right now here in the early 2017, you say maybe not yet, um, but this is something that changes very, very rapidly. Uh, the European media landscape is characterized by a number of things that don't, does not, that does, does not characterize the US landscape. And I mean, we do have, especially in this part of Europe, a strong public broadcasting culture. We have a culture of uh, very strong uh, quality broadsheet newspapers. These are, these institutions are important institutions in mitigating, uh, um, mitigating developments and, and, and notions like fake, fake news. Do you think that the general trust in journalists has decreased in the recent years? On the topic of trust, we see you know trust is changing and becoming more diversified. It's not the case that you know trust in all institutions is dropping everywhere, but there are some institutions that are under pressure, and you see that in different uh, in different countries. In some places, it's the judiciary; some places, it's more politics, and and in some countries, it's also journalists. Um, but here, it's also important to see that if you look at the data, it also tends to be quite diverse. It's not that there's this dramatic drop on for all journalists, but that there is 
a diversification where some people tend to trust some outlets and some media organizations more than others. Do you agree with the notion that uh, traditional journalism is a dying industry? I find it uh, uh, sort of a, a challenge to, to accept that premise. I mean, with all the landscape changes in the media, uh, a lot of them still rely on, on, on journalism. So even if you look, say, at the uh, rise of social media and platform uh, such as Facebook or Twitter, um, on the one hand, of course, you can make an argument saying they are taking over some of the functions that news media used to play. But in fact, if you look at a lot of information and news that is shared on social uh, media platforms, for example, are uh, news stories that come from relative traditional uh, news media outlets like the New York Times or the NRK in Norway or the BBC. Uh, so uh, it, it's challenging for the traditional news organizations to maintain the same position, but a lot of the traffic that takes place in uh, a social media platform is also traffic utilizing the products of, 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 uh, of journalistic and uh, news organizations. Their big challenge is that they might not be credited much for this uh, because a lot of uh, citizens, once they receive news in their timeline on Facebook, for example, don't necessarily recognize the source of that news and, and some even believe that it's actually Facebook who is, uh, who is sharing this and making this news, which is of course a major challenge for those companies that invest a lot of resources in, in generating actual news stories. Do you believe that there is a, a, a tendency that people can sort of choose what kind of news and uh, things online to be exposed for uh, uh, when you compare it to the earlier years when people get exposed from the news on, for instance, TV? Mm. I mean, there's no doubt that it's today much easier to uh, to put together your own uh, own media diet, and, and, and as I said, you can you know you can basically consume news 24 hours a day, or you can be consuming media content 24 hours a day, but not consuming news. That has been that has become easier. Um, the degree to which people select on the basis of, say, political preferences or ideological standpoints, uh, that is still very much in, in, in development there. Uh, if you look at the current research in, in Europe, we don't have a lot of strong evidence to say that this kind of partisan or political self-selection and pol uh, uh, sort of self-selecting into filter bubbles, that that is very strong in Europe. And again, there are things about the European media landscape that that, that mitigate these kind of processes. But this is something that is developing uh, rapidly. And, and of course, with, with technology and the increase of choice, um, it, is a, it is an ongoing process. And I think we have to make a distinction between what is um, self-selected uh, uh, content preferences, where you indicate, for example, when you read news online that you're interested in particular topics. And then you have because that's transparent and at least it's an, it's an active choice on the, on the side of a, of a news con, uh, consumer. But you also have the more hidden, uh, say the more uh, algorithmic based uh, choices uh, where uh, Facebook, Google, uh, big platforms, but also big news companies uh, based on your previous online behavior select news and information for you. And that is more important and harder to maybe also accept um, because the citizen is not playing an, an, an active role in, in making that self-selection. And then you can end up, uh, you could almost say, by accident in a filter bubble. You are a part of the ERC project, which is titled Your Opinions, where you monitor public attitudes towards the EU. 
analyze media coverage of the EU and voting behavior. What have you discovered so far? Yes, yeah, so, so understanding the nature and development of citizens' opinions about the EU has always been one of my, my, my core interests. And, and one of the, the reasons for doing this and applying for this EOC project was that uh, I believe that thinking about the EU today, we have to accept that citizens uh, can have very differentiated uh, opinions. It's not, to everybody, it's not just a matter of liking it and wanting more of it and wanting less of it. It's quite possible for a citizen to be generally supportive of the EU, might be in favor of the Euro, but be highly dissatisfied with, say, the democratic nature of some of the institutions and some of the policy areas, or the other way around. And, and, and the EOC project is, is very much geared, and that's also what we are seeing so far, to, to unravel and figure out what these dimensions are uh, of, of EU attitudes and how they, uh, um, yeah, how they develop over time. Uh, what kind of impact does media framing have on political elections and for the political communication in general? <laughs> That's a, it's almost an impossible question uh, to answer because it's such a such a big question. But but I think it's it, it's reasonable to assume that, uh, that that information has become more relevant to citizens' decision making. If we look across um, countries in, in in Western Europe and some countries, this is a more prevalent uh, phenomenon than in others. But we do see a tendency to higher degrees of volatility and late decision making in elections. So citizens move around more. Uh, in their choice sets uh, between parties and they don't necessarily know three months in advance what they're going to vote but only take decisions rather late in the campaign and with elections like that uh, information and also the way in which information is framed uh, can have a potentially bigger impact than, than we might have seen in the past. Why is populist political communication something that we need to worry about? Yeah, I think it's important to say when we talk about populist and to, to be to avoid uh, uh, labeling some parties or actors as being populist and others not. Uh, the core of populism is very much also about uh, uh, a rhetorical style and a communication style, uh, talking about being uh, representing the people, being anti-elitist, uh, uh, portraying a specific group or country as the outgroup, and this is actually something that you can say that political actors can do in, 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 in uh, lesser or greater extent. So some do that uh, very strongly uh, and others do that much less so. But it's important not to, go, to fall into the trap saying they are populist and they are non-populist, but there are sort of all kinds of nuances and shades of grey here. Um, and that is also uh, important for the discussion about populism because some elements of populism uh, may be standing up for uh, uh, some, some people's interest is, is, is not necessarily a democratically bad thing, whereas maybe the full version of populism and a very strong outgroup uh, definition and a very strong anti-elitist uh, 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 rhetoric might end up uh, contributing to undermining uh, um, Western democracies. So it's important to have that nuance in here and not to, not to discuss uh, populism in, in a black and white manner. What can you say about the recent election in the Netherlands? 
Yes, this was an election that had a, uh, the attention really of, of the rest of the world because it was one of the first uh, elections to, fall, to come after the Brexit referendum in the UK and, and the election of Donald Trump as president to the United States. So there was a lot of attention to what would happen here. And, and I think the story about the Dutch election is one with a couple of different uh, uh, um, conclusions to be made. I mean, on the one hand, the uh, PVV, the Wilders Party, was both a winner and a loser. Um, it was a winner because they obtained more seats in Parliament than they did in the last election, but it was also a losing part because they were polling uh, a few weeks before the elections to maybe be the, the first and the biggest party, and they became second, but quite far behind the, uh, the government party. So that's important. The, so the PPV party was both a winner and a loser. Um, and another important observation is that, that the Dutch party landscape is really... Um, fragmented now. I mean, with this election, you basically, you don't, at this point in time, really have any big parties at this point in time in Dutch politics, but you have sort of five to six moderately sized parties, and that's of course important also when, when we look ahead and, and look at the current formation of a new government, because you need at least four parties to, to have a majority in the Dutch second chamber. Do you have any theories on why the outcome of the election were so different uh, from what people expected? Well, the developments in the, over the course of the campaign actually pointed in, in the direction of the outcome, and you also saw that the polls towards the end were were actually quite close to the to the end result. Um, so the biggest thing that may have happened over the course of the campaign was the was the sort of decline of the builders and his party. And I mean, one of the reasons was that he did not campaign very actively, and he. Uh, uh, refuted to, to be in debate with a number of other politicians, so he was less visible in the campaign that, than he probably had hoped for. Um, and, and another thing that happened very late in the campaign was that the Prime Minister's party and the Prime Minister himself was very much stepping out of the role of just being the leader of the party, but also being Prime Minister again because of the uh, international situation that happened with Turkey. Uh, whereby he was both prime minister and lead candidate, and that gave him a, a lot of sort of extra attention in the media in the final days before the election. Uh, so Britain are formally going out of the EU today. Uh, do you mean this will have any effect on other European countries regarding their membership of the EU or the opinion people have on mm -hmm. EU? I mean, it, if we look at at, our, at the numbers, uh, very you know, very little evidence that that countries, say like Denmark or the Netherlands, that they would want to leave the European Union. Uh, there is much more skepticism and critique uh, of the EU today than there was 10 years ago. Uh, but there's something fundamentally different than really uh, wanting to leave. Um, how this plays out over the next two years is, is also depending on what is, what is perceived as, as being the impact on Britain. Are they perceived to be able to get a, a reasonable deal and whereby it looks as if you can easily leave a European Union and still keep some benefits? Or does it look like, oh, if you're out, you also lose some benefits? That, that would be important also for guiding uh, electorates in, in, in other parts of Europe in the next years. And what are your current research projects or what is on the agenda for the near future? 
Yeah, so uh, right now I'm very much devoted to the uh, to the ERC project and your opinions. That's my, my sort of core uh, interest over the next years, and I have a wonderful team put together that's international, interdisciplinary in nature, and that's the one of the fantastic advantages of having such a grant that you get to work on a topic for four to five years with a team of highly talented young young scholars. So that's one of my key. Uh, my key interest, uh, and in addition to that, I'm working in this interdisciplinary project uh, at the University of Amsterdam with people from information law and, 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 and informatics on what this increased degree of personalization, what does that mean for society? What does it mean if your news diet looks different than mine? What does it mean if you get different types of advertisement than I get? Uh, what are some of the impacts in that? And, and also, what are some of the legal uh, considerations to take into account here? So those are two projects that I work a lot on, in addition to a project on, uh, on, on uh, communication and, and, and youth engagement in politics. Could you offer any advice to young researchers who are at the beginning of their career? I think one of the key things when you, when you aspire a, an academic and scientific career is that you must be really, really genuinely puzzled and interested in the, in the topic. Without this sort of very core curiosity and openness, um, it, it's, it's a hard field to be in because you, uh, you work a lot and you don't really stop sort of at five and say goodbye to your thoughts on the topics. So you really must burn for the topic, otherwise it's, it's, it's a frustrating experience. Uh, it's also curiosity is, is really important. Uh, welcome unexpected findings. It's, it's one of those things we often go into a study uh, with an expectation of finding things, and sometimes some of the interesting outcomes are in the in the unexpected areas. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and an advice uh, I would probably give to, to young people we see it across Europe that the level of certainty of academic careers is not very high, especially if you are a, a young researcher. Uh, and it's not, it's an easy advice that's hard to follow, but I would advise to try not to worry too much in the beginning. Uh, uh, also in other areas of, of, uh, of life there are a lot of certainties, uh, uh, many more than there maybe were uh, earlier. And, and, and so my advice would be to try not to over-worry in the beginning and simply go for it. Uh, because not only is life full of uncertainties, uh, so is science. Thank you so much and good luck on your researching processes in the future.